from PRX. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. And I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is right Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I'd like to have the roasted chicken, please. Very well done. Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. With Kurt Anderson. Well, I just got back from swimming in the pool, and the water was cold. Uh, you mean shrinkage? Yes. Men's anxiety about genital size is a staple of modern comedy, like this famous Jerry and George bit on Seinfeld. So you you feel you were shortchanged? Yes. I mean, if she thinks that's me, she's under a complete misapprehension. And that anxiety, with a bit of comedy, insanely also moved into presidential politics during the last Republican primary race. He's always calling me Little Marco. And I'll admit, the guy, he's taller than me, he's like 6'2", which is why I don't understand why his hands are the size of someone who's 5'2". And you know what they say about men with small hands? That's Marco Rubio with then-candidate Donald Trump. Look at those hands. Are they small hands? And he referred to my hands. If they're small, something else must be small. I guarantee you there's no problem. I guarantee it. Incidentally, as a co-inventor of the short-fingered Trump trope 30 years ago, we meant it strictly, literally, about his fingers. But as for penis size, it has not always been thus. In antiquity, compactness was the ideal. Think about when you visited the ancient art sections of museums, the male nudes from 2,000, 3,000 years ago. What are we looking at here? Uh, We're looking at uh, a sculpture of Hercules. Uh, The god. The the god. Yeah, well, hero and god. Yeah. This is a larger than life, I yeah. believe. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. What, like eight feet, maybe? Or, eh, maybe seven-ish. seven. I think seven ish. So he's a, he's a I was up right. at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York to wander around with Andrew Lear, who's a scholar of antiquity and art history tour guide. The Met has one of the world's best collections of classical art. It's displayed on the museum's first floor in a long hall with little galleries you can duck into along the way. And the end of the hall opens up to a glorious courtyard, this two-story sunlit space with giant white columns and a, a, a gurgling fountain and dozens of white marble figures in various states of undress. Andrew and I started at a statue of Hercules that was sculpted in the first century A.D. He, he's tall and lean and incredibly ripped, like he spends a couple of hours a day at the gym with a trainer. He's got an animal skin, but otherwise naked. Also missing a bit of what we've come to examine. So here's our subject, the penis. Uh, You know, let's let's get closer. All right. Um, I mean, first of all, the penis is, of course, broken off in this case. So we can't even say it's been gigantic. Well, no, that's unlikely. just on general principle, because right. we don't have gigantic right. penises on heroes. I think I think we shouldn't exaggerate how small they are. They're, they're, no, in sculpture, they're not that small. Right. They're, they're, exactly. this, they're like an, a 
they're definitely yeah. human size, yeah. but interestingly enough, isn't so much statuary uh-huh. as vase painting, in which penises are really small. In really? statuary, they're maybe they're never large, but they're not necessarily. Interesting. Yeah, they're, they're pretty much human size yeah. in statuary. It's in vase painting where they get tiny. To find some of the tainsies, we walk back down the long hall, which is lined with glass displays, packed with vases, other containers, painted clay fragments. And Andrew guides me to a vitrine full of sport-themed objects. We look at a collection of large terracotta jugs from the 5th and 6th centuries B.C., those ones, you know, made of red and black clay. These were winner's trophies in sporting events, and they're painted with athletic scenes, men running and wrestling and boxing. And all the men, of course, naked. And you can certainly see that the figure on the left has a penis that's not like the one in the sculpture, which is kind of a human size, um, and really very small. Yeah. Like, so small, it, it doesn't actually look like... Like you're saying, like, an inch and a half. Yeah, yeah something because, like Because there's, uh, again, just to distinguish... Uh, we see scrotum as well as penis. Right, there. scrotum. And, but it's, for some reason, and this I don't think anyone can really explain, it's very important to the Greeks to show a penis. Like, it doesn't matter whether he's in a position where his penis would actually show or not. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, they, that's interesting. They, it is interesting. And they will show penises in the most surprising pieces, mm. kind of like twist the guy's body to have his penis on display. And definitely a penis and testicles. And the penis is, um, or a penis and a scrotum. And the penis is very clearly uncircumcised. Uh-huh. And it also, there's a kind of shape they favor, which is kind of long and thin. Yeah. Long foreskin. I, I, again, I, doing my research, I, I, the modern contemporary penis is 3.6 inches. And when non, when non-erect, when, is when, that how long the yeah. modern penis so that's, is? Yeah, that, so that looks smaller than that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. These are, they're like Frankenstein. They're put together out of the body parts of different things. The penis is the penis of a boy. Yeah. While the body is the body of a man. Huh. So why did they do that so consistently in, in here in this vase, on the uh, statues? Yeah, everywhere. Why is it? It's definitely a connection to an ideal. Th- this ideal of self-restraint and so non-sexuality uh-huh. as an ideal. The Metropolitan's Hall of Antiquities also has a lot of female figures, but with almost all of them, all that's exposed is the occasional breast. Yeah, you have a few examples of female nudity, but female nudity is almost always Aphrodite. Uh-huh. So men are nude literally always. Not hmm. always, but in, not always in Roman, but in Greek very, very frequently. They tended to think of masculine nudity as um, some kind of aesthetic ideal. And, and we must know enough about actual day-to-day culture in Athens in 400 B.C. or 300 B.C. to know what a viewer thought of that. Was it like... Giggle, giggle, look at the size of this, or whoa, isn't you know, he hot? Or no, what? This, is, this is the funny thing. Is since The interesting thing about uh, penises in Greek art is not that some of them are small, but that they are all on the small side, which means that you're not representing anything to do with real life, because, of course, in real life, penises are pretty variable. Instead, you're representing an ideal, right. how penises are supposed yeah. to be. And we, I don't think we have any evidence that anyone in the ancient world ever noticed huh. that, in fact penis size and ethical character do not correlate. (laughs) They they never said, oh, Joe's isn't so small and he seems kind of cool. No, never. But was it the opposite? Was it that, oh, uh, this is a modest thing because your your base desires and sheer lustfulness was in fact the thing to avoid? Yes, that's exactly what it's all about. It's all symbolic. 
um, the smaller penis, non-erect, even in, in hot sex scenes in art, uh, at least in many of them, a man, if meant to be an admirable man, doesn't have an erection uh, because this is all about self-control. Right. Prudence, uh, temperance, restraint. self-control, restraint, right. all of which are part of masculinity. And, and so, uh, are there any examples? I mean, if we searched the entire collection of the Metropolitan Museum uh, of, of, of art of antiquity, where, like, oh, look, there's a sizable penis. Yes, of yeah? course, absolutely. On satyrs, who are these half-goat, half-man creatures and represent the wild urge. Uh-huh. In one of the little galleries, there are glass cases with shelves of smaller items, cups, bowls, more clay bottles and vases. These also have drawings on them. Again, a lot of nude men and some clothed women. Andrew scans the cases, crouching down to find some pictures of the satyrs, the half-goat, half-men dudes, on the lower shelves. Oh, here we have some satyrs. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, if you, you'll have to come down here. But you can see that uh, the satyr, this is not an enormous example, but there are many... But he's got uh, an erection. He's got an erection. And satyrs certainly have much larger penises than men, and they sometimes kind of come up to their chest. Oh, we have another one over here. Oh, here's another one. Yes. Yeah. These were not noble creatures? What, exactly. Why did we think of satyrs? I mean, what did they satyrs think Satyrs are f- funny. Uh-huh. They're funny and ridiculous. They have urges you wouldn't... You know, they represent the id. Right, <laughs> right, right. Absolutely. And so these were utilitarian household... Objects? Yes, pr- probably um, m- the ones we're looking at are, were made for the use at the symposium, which is the late night drinking parties that were the center of the Greek social world. Huh. So these are various things to Those do with Those were male wine. events? All, all male except for entertainers. In other words, no respectable woman was present. Oh, so that makes more sense that, oh, we're getting drunk and we're drinking yes. out of this thing with yes. the Seder with the... Absolutely. Yeah, there's one uh, that I don't know if we have time to look at, but this... You know, we have an image in the bottom of what you come to when you're done drinking. And at the bottom, there's the satyr with the erection, right? Because that's behaving in a wild way. And that's, you know, he's grabbing a, a female worshiper of Bacchus who's shoving him away with a wand. And that's, um, that's you know, it's, it's like a little warning or a little joke. Ha, 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 look what condition you're in. Because you've come to the bottom of your cup. And on that note, Andrew Lear will end. Thank you very much. It was really a pleasure uh, getting toured and taught and schooled by you. Andrew Lear runs Oscar Wilde Tours, which you can find at oscarwildetours.com. And you can see images of some of the works we saw at the Met on our website, studio360.org, where you can also find a link to the essay on Artsy that piqued our interest in this subject in the first place. Coincidentally, for a contemporary and somewhat obsessive take on the subject, the new museum in Lower Manhattan has a fantastic new show, a retrospective of the British artist Sarah Lucas, whose work has always played with sexual references and body humor and... Oh, oh, there's many, many pieces in the show. If it were just a couple, it would be something else. But I think the sheer volume of penises in the show, kind of, there's, there's an absurdity to that fact. That's Margot Norton. She's a curator of the new museum show, which includes more than 150 pieces from the last 30 years. It's called Sarah Lucas, Au Naturel. Like a lot of Sarah Lucas's work, the title references uh, art history. So 
au naturel, which translates in French to in the natural or in the nude. It was also the title of many paintings of traditionally female nude figures and traditionally painted by men. Um, And so it is also kind of referencing the myriad images of women as kind of passive objects of desire throughout the history of art and kind of flipping it around. In Sarah Lucas's art, it's men on display getting the gaze. Actually, not so much men, just depictions of manhood, abstract and otherwise. A cucumber stuck into a mattress here, a couple of crumpled beer cans or a stuffed stocking there. There are two monumental examples on the museum's top floor. We're standing here with uh, two sculptures by Sarah Lucas from 2013, which are titled Eris and Priapus. They consist of giant concrete cast phallic forms, which are propped atop a uh, kind of cube of a crushed car. They are very large scale. Um, The phallic forms are kind of bigger than the crushed cars, just to give you a sense of, of the scale of them, probably around six feet tall. And the girth is about the width of, you know, what a kind of medium-sized tree would be. There's, I think there's both kind of a celebration of the formal qualities of the penis, but also a kind of mocking um, and by coupling it with cars, which you know are themselves kind of symbols of virility and speed, is interesting. And she's also showing them crushed, so they're kind of malformed and dismembered. And we wondered how the museum goers have so far reacted to this phallus fiesta. It's been interesting to see the reaction to a lot of visitors to this exhibition because it really is so rare that you see penises cast in when going to a museum. And so people will often laugh at it or maybe even turn away because they're embarrassed, <laughs> which it, you know, it's really interesting because it definitely does bring to mind that fact that we're so used to seeing images of you know, nude women, but when it comes to the you know, nude men, you know, people are very embarrassed to see it or they're just not used to seeing you know, images of penises in art. Margot Norton spoke with Studio 360's Lauren Hansen, who also produced the Metropolitan Museum expedition. Next, we talk to an artist who's got a very different anatomical focus. By day, a respiratory therapist. There is definitely a correct way to give a breathing treatment. But by night, a playwright and screenwriter. With writing, it's a little bit more subjective. Coming up, a new installment of our Day Job series. That's next on Studio 360. Stacy Rose is a playwright in Minnesota, St. Paul, but by day, and sometimes also by night, she's a respiratory therapist. As part of our Day Jobs series, Stacy told us about her two very different lines of work. 
Not being able to breathe is just like having a giant hand squeeze your chest with this pressure that isn't painful, but which just suppresses slowly but surely the amount of air that's coming in and out. I'm Stacy Rose. I am a writer for stage, screen, and hopefully soon television. I'm a respiratory therapist and I help people breathe. The truth of how healthcare works is actually more interesting and more dramatic at times than what you see on television. Like, it's interesting when I watch healthcare shows like ER. Which, by the way, for a long, long time, I thought was the most accurate in terms of how healthcare actually works in a hospital setting. Be fib, charging to two hundred. Everybody off. Cancel, Gussie. Just a sec. But they'll like have these tremendous codes and these like high pressure things, and there's no respiratory therapist in the room. Lidocaine, hundred IV push. Hang a drip, two milligrams a minute. Shoot a chest, get a gas, and call respiratory. No, we're probably there already. Like, we get yelled at if we're not there. Wow. Well, what? Today's her 50th birthday. I'd always had an interest in writing, and I'd always been an avid reader. I was kind of the wheezy, chubby kid in school who read a lot of books. And I journaled a lot. Um, I didn't really take any of it too seriously. Until I was in my 30s, actually, (laughs) and I was divorcing at the time, and I was looking for something to kind of satisfy this urge to create and this urge to kind of alleviate some of the pain I was feeling around my divorce. And so I decided to go back to uh, college, which I often do when I don't know what to do with my life. (laughs) I ultimately uh, chose theater. I got into NYU and... Very quickly, uh, people began taking to the things I was writing. I had this kismet meeting with Spike Lee on the street about halfway through my first year, and he became a mentor of sorts. I audited his class and built that relationship. I love walking the beautiful and nitty-gritty streets of New York City. But sometimes walking the beautiful nitty-gritty streets as a woman can be, well... Brutal. Ended up working as writer's assistant and script coordinator on his show for Netflix. She's got to have it. Excuse me, miss, but you so fine. I drink a tub of your bath water out of champagne glass. You want to know why? Because your mom's placenta was filled with holy water. God blessing you, girl. Mm, good God. As I get older and as both jobs get more demanding, it's harder because it is very hard working at night And then coming home and getting like maybe the four to five hours of day sleep that I get and either heading back to work or heading to the next commitment or heading to a show or part of writing theater, especially for me, is taking in theater. Balancing all that is incredibly difficult. The biggest part of our job is managing uh, ventilators. So 
So a ventilator is the machine responsible for breathing when a patient is too sick to do it on their own, or it can be um, used when a patient is going to have surgery. It basically breathes for you. I'm usually in one of the ICUs. Some nights I can come in and I can have three vents. Some nights I come in and it's like wall-to-wall ventilators. So when I go in, I, you know, assess each one of my patients. I listen to their breath sounds. I look at their tube to make sure it's where it's documented in the chart. I look at their vent settings, you know. I could have a patient and they just completely look like they're going down the tube. I can see them the next day and they're waving at me. And they're off the vent. Like, that's... That's the best feeling in the world when you watch somebody completely go through it and you're like, yeah, like I I help do that. That is the part of my job that I love most. I can remember caring for someone. Their family member was incredibly sick and he was the next of kin. The only thing that I could do besides what I was doing was talk to him. Because the thing is, he didn't want to make the decision to let this person pass. Having the conversations with him made it easier for him to let go. That's a whole other thing. Like, when you're not saving lives, how do you honor people's lives at the end? And I think that has been the part of my job that has been the most humbling and educational for me. I have watched a lot of people pass in my time as a therapist. And um, in good ways and very bad ways. Um, And I would like to think that I gave my best to each person who um, was transitioning. There's a certain level of BS that gets eliminated when death shows up. Like it doesn't care who you are, it doesn't care what you've achieved. It it just doesn't care. People who are in direct contact with patients for sustained periods, we have the most morbid sense of humor. It's funny, and at times it just gets a little bit too dark. And it does desensitize you a little bit. That's kind of the beauty of me being an artist as well, is that it kind of brings me back into this sensitivity and the human side of myself. I'm surrounded by life lessons. The best in people and sometimes the worst in people come out when their family members are sick or when they're sick. I make it my business to never borrow stories from patients. The general sense of humanity that I get from my job is what I take into my written work. This career enabled me to be who I am and do what I do, and I am forever indebted to it. And it's part of my desire to to tell our stories because no one knows outside of a very small sphere who we are or what we do. There is definitely a correct way to give a breathing treatment. With writing, it's a little bit more subjective. If I weren't an artist, I don't think I'd be as compassionate a therapist as I am. I don't think I'd be able to navigate 
people the way that I do. That's Stacy Rose. She's now at work on a new play for the Goodman Theater's Playwrights Unit in Chicago. Our story was produced by Sandra Lopez-Monsalve and Skylar Swenson. So do you know somebody or are you somebody who's got an interesting day job that pays the bills while important creative pursuits are otherwise pursued? Like maybe a a stand-up comic who's a bail bondsman 9 to 5 or a novelist who works as a dog walker. If so, we want to hear about her or, or him or you or them. Give us the basics in a voice memo or an email and send it to incoming at studio360.org. Coming up... He flew around the world in a small aircraft. A Christmas radio play. Taking pictures, making videos, scribbling notes. He had a weapon, a long wand, which temporarily paralyzed nearby creatures. He preferred to demonstrate his good intentions by giving away tokens, beads, and bits of gold. Adapted from a story I wrote. And it's next on Studio 360. Studio 360. As you've probably noticed, it's almost Christmas. So today, I've got a Christmas story for you. There'll be no stockings hung or mistletoe or talking snowmen in this Christmas story. Instead, it involves high-tech surveillance and melting polar ice caps. But I guarantee it's in the spirit. I wrote this story for an anthology edited by the great fiction writer Neil Gaiman. And then, with the help of the great radio maker and Studio 360 alumnus Jonathan Mitchell, we turned it into this radio drama. It's called Human Intelligence. I hope you enjoy it. He found it painful to lie, which was unfortunate for someone who had spent most of his life as a spy. In recent years, for fun, he had sometimes told strangers, children, as well as their childlike parents, who he really was. I'm a spy. I'm here on a long-term intelligence gathering operation, but it's super top secret, so, you know, if you don't mind, I really, that's all I can say about it. In America in the 21st century, who was going to be anything but amused by a charming, well-groomed old gentleman making a fantastic remark or two? I'm officially stationed thousands of miles away, but I've been on assignment in Chicago practically forever. He had looked like an old man even when he was younger. He had grown a full beard to conceal the purple cross-hatching of surgical scars on his chin and upper neck. Now that he was genuinely elderly, it pleased him that appearance and reality had come into sync. He looked old, and, by any standard, he was old. One less lie to live. As for his mission... He doubted that anyone at headquarters was any longer aware of him or his mission, if headquarters still existed. Television had made his job much easier. The internet had made it moot. Yet he had continued to adhere to the four main directives of the contingency plan, almost as articles of faith. Remain at the last position reported to headquarters. 
Maintain all necessary discretion and secrecy. Continue to chronicle the people and their society to whatever extent possible. Await retrieval. Retrieval is the closest English translation of the word in the orders, not rescue. He'd come to resent that since the crash. Had he gone native? Probably so. So here he was, living in a city a thousand times larger than when he arrived, chronicling and waiting, chronicling and waiting, chronicling and still waiting. It was three years ago when he first saw the throb of purple light and shouted so loudly that his young downstairs neighbor called up to see if he was all right. According to the contingency plan instructions, a purple light on his remote beacon meant that sensors on the exterior of the station were exposed to sunlight. And he inferred the obvious. When a third of the polar cap melted in the summer of 2007, the top of his old station, the tubing and tanks, were no longer buried by dozens of feet of Arctic ice. What's taking them so long to find it? For each of the last three summers, he has waited for the news bulletins and resulting global hysteria. And although it felt vaguely insubordinate... To whom? Or even traitorous. To what? He was excited by the prospect of everyone on Earth all at once learning... the truth. Nancy Zuckerman had always liked spending time outdoors. When she was seven, she could stick a live worm on a fishing hook and set up a tent herself. But it was the second Indiana Jones sequel, The Summer She Turned Eight, that set her old-fashioned dream. At the end of the 20th century, adults patronized little Nancy, not because she was a girl, but because explorers no longer existed. Fortunately, she was a cheerful team player as well as a cheerfully independent loner. She used to say, If I could be a superhero, I would be totally willing to be like a second-string member of X-Men or the Justice League. And so science and her particular field suited her. Exploration geophysics, specializing in the Arctic. She hadn't minded spending the last year and a half in the Svalbard Islands, northernmost Norway. She was attached to a project team testing the feasibility of thickening the polar cap by pumping seawater onto the ice and letting it freeze. Good data had been collected. Techniques had been refined. It wasn't heroic exploration of the kind she'd imagined as a child, but as she approached 30, she'd made her peace with the realities of incremental science and the world as it was. Or so she had thought until a few weeks ago, She was five days into an excursion aboard the university's research vessel, the Dauntless, taking a group of undergraduates on a tour of the edge of the ice cap. Around 2 a.m. one July morning, unable to sleep, she'd gotten up and taken one of the motorboats out, alone, to cruise close to the ice, looking for polar bears to photograph. It was warm, 46 degrees, the sky almost cloudless and the sun high in the sky. The sea was calm. Thirty yards from the ice at the mouth of a new inlet, she cut the motor and let herself drift along. Sitting in the bottom of the boat, watching. 
camera at the ready. She was exploring. A half hour passed. Some turns flew past, but she saw no bears or seals. When she heard and felt the thud, she figured she'd struck a chunk of submerged ice. The boat rocked freely in the water, even though it was stuck more or less in place. What the hell? She started probing underwater with the tip of an oar blade, and a foot and a half beneath the surface found not ice, but what felt like pipe. A big pipe. She climbed over to the opposite side to probe some more and found another pipe running parallel. Completely bizarre. Kneeling, she started to use the oar as a push-pole, levering it against the underwater pipe on one side to propel the boat back, shoving and coasting toward the opening through which she must have drifted. But then the dinghy stopped moving, caught between the mysterious pipes. The underwater pipes came together at an angle, and she was wedged near the apex, stuck fast. Oh, damn, damn, damn. She was alarmed, a little frightened. If the boat was stuck, it was not clear when she would be found. She hadn't brought along a radio. But she was also exhilarated. She was exploring. And she had discovered something. Twelve days ago, his beacon had started alternating a chartreuse throb with each purple one. Chartreuse meant that someone had entered the station, and the station's mapping console would give any clever intruder the precise location of the remote beacon. He could easily enough drop the beacon in a dumpster, or heave it into the Chicago River. Instead, he has gotten all his documents and images in order, the entire chronicle. He has packed a suitcase and straightened up the apartment. He's been watching cable TV and surfing the web constantly awaiting the astonished news bulletins. But he's surprised when the front door buzzer buzzes. He had expected helicopters and floodlights and grappling hooks and special ops troopers in black visors and hazmat suits, automatic weapons and gas canisters. He'd even practiced dropping to the floor and putting his hands over his head. He wonders if it's the UPS guy. Yes? Um. She's alone, apparently unarmed, and very young. She extends her right hand. Hi, I'm Nancy Zuckerman. Hello, I'm Nicholas Walker. I'm a scientific researcher stationed in the Arctic. Really? But so am I. Come on in. I'd love to, thank you. This is so fortunate. For the two of us, it's... it's it, <laughs> They sit. Sit down. And she begins explaining herself and in a nervous rush. In Long Yerpian with the university. Way up at the edge of the ice cap. Or and accidentally jimmied the entry system. Figured it was maybe some NATO facility. Your materials and shapes and digital interfaces. Including the big digital map with its one blinking light in the middle of North America. 87 degrees, 35 minutes. And so I found this image, this little plastic image, which turns out that it's you. I showed it to a lady downstairs, and here I am. She'd talked for ten minutes, yet she hadn't asked him where he's from or what he's doing here, which is fine by him. He's in no particular hurry. 
this is beyond surreal. I mean, I feel like I am on drugs. I mean, this is incredible. This is this is a whole category of something I cannot even define. And that's how exciting this is. Who have you told about the station? Not a soul. He knows about keeping secrets. I want to be the one to reveal it, to tell the whole story, to be, you know, the discoverer like Columbus or Magellan or Galileo or Einstein. Oh, you do you know who those people are? Uh, yes, I do. He likes this girl. He will give her the gift she wants. You said you saw images at the station? Yeah. Projected on the monitors? Dozens of pictures on those spheres. 3D, in color, of huts and houses and towns and farm animals with carts and soldiers and temples. It looked like from all over the world. Europe, Asia, Africa. I know. I took them. A lot of those images looked really old. Unbelievably old. Not the pictures. I mean, but the people and the buildings. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So you were taking photographs all over the world before photography was invented. And moving pictures, too. Videos. Well, more or less. May I ask your age? This station was established in 429 A.D. C.E. Whatever. She stares. Her skepticism races to catch up with her astonishment. I arrived just over 1,500 years ago. I'm 1,807 of your years, which is really ancient, even on my planet. It had seemed impossible to Nancy, but in the weeks since she discovered the underwater station, it had also seemed like the only plausible explanation. She tries not to hyperventilate. Where? What planet are you from? We call it Vrishangul. About 62 light years away. It's close by, but in the scheme of things, but far enough, it turns out that it made me expendable. He had imagined this encounter hundreds of times. Thousands. Even rehearsed it. You're wondering if I'm insane, I expect. Well, there have been moments over the years when I started wondering the very thing. Am I a pathetic, demented geezer? Lots of schizophrenics have delusions along this line. He picks up a pair of nail scissors from the coffee table and jabs. No! hard into the palm of his right hand. His blood is a kind of day-glow orange, and as it drips from his hand onto the table, it sizzles and burns the wood like acid. There are other mortifications I could perform, but... He really does not want to remove his eyes from their sockets or show her that he has a bifurcated phosphorescent penis and no anus at all. I believe you. I totally believe you. His government had established a system to directly monitor civilizations on the 116 inhabited planets feasible for Vrishongilians to reach. A reconnaissance probe was sent to the Earth's surface to photograph intelligent life forms. He had had extensive surgery to look human. His station was installed beneath the polar ice, and voila, he was on his own. He flew around the world in a small aircraft, taking pictures, making videos, scribbling notes, He had a weapon, a long wand, which temporarily paralyzed nearby creatures. He preferred to demonstrate his good intentions by giving away tokens, beads, and bits of gold. Once each century, a mothership would visit to resupply him and return home with a copy of his meticulous multimedia chronicle of another Earth century. So your people, back on your planet, 
We're only seeing your reports 100 years after the fact. And you wouldn't hear back from them for 100 years after that? Speed of light is the speed of light. At the end of his 800-year tour of duty in the 13th century, he was to have been replaced by a younger agent. But no mothership arrived in 1229. No mothership ever showed up again. But so, why are you here now? Why aren't you up in the Arctic? My kind of town, Chicago is... She doesn't get the joke. An accident. One winter, he was wrapping up his annual northern field survey, flying north, when he lost power and crash-landed in Lake Michigan. He managed to get most of his gold, as well as the paralyzer, video equipment, and the portable beacon... The aircraft sank. Our orders were unequivocal. Just remain as close as possible to the last position and wait for... rescue. So you were here before the Europeans? When the French arrived, fortunately, they ignored the stories the Indians told about me. And you did what? Hunted and gathered? This tangent makes him dread that she will ask to use his bathroom. He has no toilet paper. Well, I don't eat, as such. My body absorbs nutrients from the air. They had talked for more than two hours, and Nicholas had awoken two hours before she arrived. On this hot planet pouring the nutrients he needs, Nicholas sleeps nearly 20 hours a day, and he's getting drowsy. We have so much to talk about, so much! Yes, we do indeed. But if you don't mind, perhaps I can nap. Thank you. This is... So extraordinary. I can't... Words really don't... She reaches over and touches his shoulder. Thank you. I'm pleased to. Extraordinarily pleased that it was you who made the discovery. I am very, very lucky. You're lucky? You're... I mean, I won the lottery to end all lotteries. It's literally Christmas in July. (laughs) Nancy is horrified. Has this all been a practical joke? A hoax? Is this a setup for some incredibly elaborate reality show? (laughs) My fatigue has ruined my manners. I am so sorry. (laughs) There's another part of the story I I wanted to tell you later, but... Look, now that I've upset you, that simply will not do. He describes his aircraft. It was 26 feet long with a large transparent canopy, a complicated antenna array jutting out from the nose, and landing rails instead of wheels. So when the people in the north, the Nordics and the Laps and the rest saw me flying, cruising at low altitudes through the midwinter skies 900 years ago, 1100 years ago. What do you suppose they thought they were seeing? Oh my God. A sleigh? Pulled by flying reindeer, driven by a large bearded man who had given them gifts? Oh my God. She's had three weeks to get used to the idea that she'd discovered an extraterrestrial base and that she might actually find an intelligent being from another planet. But this, meeting Santa Claus, is too shocking to process. Nicholas, 
Oh my God! When they asked where I lived, I saw no reason to conceal the truth. Beyond the mountains of Corva Tentori, I told them, near the top of the world. Although I don't believe I ever said at the North Pole. He sleeps, still sitting on the couch. His head tilted back. Nancy can see the thick network of scars under the beard. It's almost midnight when he wakes. He walks to the bedroom and returns with a black spherical device that reminds Nancy of a magic eight ball. May I sit next to you? I've never figured out the way to hook this thing up to the television. Holy Christ, they've got sound! I'm an idiot. Of course they have sound. She sees aerial panoramas of Lakota Indians chasing a bison over a cliff in the sand hills. Junks and gondolas on the Tigris in Baghdad. China's Great Wall, half-built. She watches and listens to slightly furtive-looking shots inside a bustling Viking tavern in northern England. Men packing a piece of bronze statuary into a crate in 11th century Benin. A mock sea battle at the Colosseum in Rome. A smiling toddler in Edo speaking Japanese directly to the camera. And finally, a tall beardless man delivering a speech in Chicago in the summer of 1858. If one man says it does not mean a Negro, why not another say it does not mean some other man? If that declaration is not the truth, let us get the statute book in which we find it and tear it out. Yep. Abraham Lincoln. I can take you back up to the station, and you can see if the people on Free... 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 Right. Has sent any messages to you there for the last 700 years? He shakes his head. If he could cry, he might cry. Well, if I have your permission to tell your story to the world, I mean, if you prefer that I wait until after you, you know, after you're gone to reveal everything posthumously, I would completely understand. And when someone else stumbles across the station in the meantime... I'm so tired of keeping my secret. He thought about saying, All right, Miss Zuckerman, I'm ready for my close-up. But figured she probably wouldn't get it. I thought I was going to have to persuade you. I've had more than enough time to consider this, my dear. He will hand over his chronicle, all 2.4 million words he's written, and all 73,496 hours of video he's shot on every continent but Antarctica, In every year from the early 5th century to the late 19th century, he will tell everything he knows about life in our part of the Milky Way, corroborated by the library of text and images stored at the station. It's all badly out of date, of course, but it's better than nothing. And he will give to the people of Earth his surviving pieces of technology, in particular the batteries that power the video player and portable beacon and Arctic station, all still operating after a millennium. I should think that some bright scientist somewhere will be able to reverse engineer them. <laughs> this is going to be unbelievable, Nicholas. Well, let's hope not. I mean, this will be the biggest thing ever. I, I do hope that people, anyway, most people, will be glad to learn that they're not alone in the universe. Nicholas. Yes? 
May I hug you? That was a short story I wrote called Human Intelligence. The radio version was produced by Jonathan Mitchell. Melanie Hoops read the part of Nancy, and Nicholas was played by John Ottavino. The narrator was Ed Herbstman. And that's it for this episode of Studio 360. But before we go, I want to remind you to follow us on Twitter, if you'd like. We're at Studio 360 Show, and I'm at KB Anderson. That's Anderson with an E. And tweet at us. That's what a few listeners did after hearing our recent story about the song American Pie. Johnny Garf wrote, Thank you for this interview with Don McLean today. It was very comforting to listen to. Hearing snippets from the original song, as well as from Dylan and Elvis, my two-year-old shouted out, I like the music. And Christina Leone Alfar wrote, Wow, at Studio 360 Show, the segment on Don McLean and American Pie has absolutely destroyed me. The song has the note of grief for everything right now that I'm feeling. Thanks for listening, Christina and Johnny. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our executive producer is... Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is... Andrew Adam Newman. Our sound engineer is... Sandra Lopez Monsalve. Our producers are... Evan Chung. Lauren Hansen. Sam Kim. Zoe Saunders. Tommy Bazarian. Our production assistant is... Morgan Flannery. And I am Kurt Anderson. As for his mission, he doubted that anyone at headquarters was any longer aware of him or his mission. Thanks very much for listening. PRI Public Radio International. Oh, Miss Piggy appears angry. Next time on Studio 360. Angry? No, your star is not angry. She is really disappointed. Why the Muppets matter? They're people. They're people. They're just people. You know, one of them's a frog, one of them's a pig, but uh, but they're basically people. A special American icon story about the Muppets. Next time on Studio 360.